This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, and welcome to Health Check. I'm your host, Joyce Teo, and I'm a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. The World Health Organization has declared that antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, is one of the top 10 global health threats facing humanity. Antimicrobials are medicines that inhibit or kill the germs that cause diseases. So AMR occurs when some of the germs that cause infections no longer respond to the drugs designed to kill them. Infections then become harder or impossible to treat. So my special guest today is Associate Professor Su Li Yang. He has spent the past decade researching and treating patients with antibiotic-resistant bacterial and invasive fungal infections. He's currently the Vice Dean of Global Health and the Program Leader of Infectious Diseases at the NUS Sosui Hawk School of Public Health. Hello, Liang. Welcome to Health Check. Hello again, Joyce. Yeah, thanks for coming on again. <laughs> so let's talk about antimicrobial resistance or AMR. Right? It's your area of interest and a serious problem in the world. But to many people, I think AMR is quite like a foreign concept, right? It's a bit like climate change, actually. So tell us, why should people be so concerned about AMR? You know, especially because we're now in the middle of the pandemic and there is now Omicron. Thanks very much for this question, Joyce. And it's a good one. So as you know very well, antimicrobial resistance is the phenomenon where microbes evolve to survive the drugs used to kill them. And although this term is largely applied to bacteria, where many species of antibiotic-resistant bacteria like MRSA have spread and appeared in the news in the past, but the term also equally applies to malaria and HIV, for instance. And I think we should be concerned about AMR for similar reasons that we are concerned about climate change, even in the middle of a pandemic. Because uh, antimicrobial resistance, like climate change, continues to occur and evolve. And all the resources we have poured into containing the pandemic has meant that there are actually fewer resources and less attention on other important issues such as AMR. Right. So, But when we talk about AMR, actually, I mean, to the layperson, right, you know, what should they be actually be aware of? What can they do about this? I think perhaps the most important thing for all of us is to be more aware of antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance, um, that it is not a thing that happens only in other countries or in hospitals. And as I mentioned, like climate change, it is a process that is going on around us, largely driven by how we use or abuse antibiotics in both humans and animals. So most of the things that we individuals can do about AMR are also the things we can do about COVID-19, for instance, like making sure we are up to date with our vaccines so that there's far less risk of falling sick and getting antibiotics prescribed to us. We can also maintain hygienic practices like washing our hands regularly. And then if we do get coughs and colds, and you say the COVID test is negative, then we should not ask doctors for antibiotics because they don't work against uh, viruses. I think in the medium term, we should probably refrain from meat that comes from animals raised with antibiotic growth promoters. But this is not something most people can do now because I think, for example, the chickens raised without the use of antibiotic growth promoters are still much more costly than the regular supermarket chicken. The hormone-free ones, is it? Or the organic ones? Um. I'm not sure that the term applies, but if you go to the supermarkets, you occasionally come across meat that says antibiotic-free 
or no antibiotics have been used to raise these animals. Now, there are lots of issues with labels, right? They may not always be the most accurate. But for the most common uh, chickens that are sold in the wet markets or frozen chicken in the supermarkets, for instance, they are mostly from Brazil or Malaysia. And uh, most of the time, antibiotics have been given in very small doses every day as part of the feed for these chickens so that they can uh, grow better and grow in very crowded, unhygienic conditions like the coops that they are reared in. And that's what we would like to try to avoid uh, in the medium term. Right. Okay. But, it, you know, it's probably pricey to, to buy the other type of chicken, right? At so, this point, yes. Yes, that's true. Right. So, so what can be, you know, what do you think can be, will be a solution to this then? I think it's a matter of time. There's, I guess, a lot of consumer pressure on on fresh, healthy food. And in other countries, like the US, for instance, that has led to um, even companies like McDonald's using uh, antibiotic promoter-free chickens for their chicken McNuggets. It doesn't happen in Asia yet, but in the US, the pressure has been so high that they've had to change. Uh, in the mm. EU and in US, for instance, they have passed laws that uh, prevent farms from using antibiotic growth promoters to raise animals, not just chickens, but pigs and other animals. Um, I think in Asia, there's a movement to do so, but um, it hasn't gained enough momentum yet for this to happen. But I guess eventually it will. Right. So how much harm will it cost you know, the human person after eating these products? Most of the time it's safe, right? We've been eating this sort of chickens for decades and uh, I guess we're still the same as we have ever been. It's um, just that this practice has led to more antibiotic-resistant bacteria being out in the environment and it has spread to places where you wouldn't expect such bacteria. And in a few cases, some of these bacteria have come back to cause human infections or to transfer resistance genes to bacteria that cause human infections. So there's ultimately a cost in all this, which is why we don't just talk about GPs and hospitals, but nowadays also about antibiotic use in animals and the environment. What other type of uh, food products will have such antibiotics, growth promoters that you mentioned? Well, antibiotic growth promoters are mostly used in animals like chickens and to a lesser extent in, in pigs and almost never in, in cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's quite surprising to find the uses of uh, antibiotics. For instance, I never knew that um, previously people used to spray this antibiotic called gentamicin on apples growing mm-hmm. in orchards because it works as an effective uh, pesticide. That used to be quite common. Now I'm not sure. It's very hard to find information about this uh, practice. I see. So we probably <laughs> ate quite a lot of those apples. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Previously, people also used to automatically inject a little bit of antibiotic into eggs to try to control salmonella. Um, this doesn't obviously happen in, in Singapore on the eggs that we have in our supermarkets. It was a practice in the past as well. Oh, okay. Is it less common now? So it still happens then? Yes, it is less common. And in, in, in Singapore, it doesn't happen full stop, right? The, the eggs that we have from the local farms don't have these. And neither do the eggs that we import in because our uh, HSA tests for 
antibiotic residues um, very thoroughly. So Liang, what about the use of hand sanitizers and all this antibacterial soap that everybody is using now in this pandemic, right? You know, how will this affect us? This is a very good question that keeps coming up. And I remember looking at this a few years ago. Um, so the usual compounds used as antibacterials in all these antibacterial soaps and hand wash, for instance, uh, triclosan and triclocarbon, and this compound called uh, benzalkonium chloride. And these have been used in cleaning products for hospitals for decades before transiting to home use since the 1990s. And now, at least on Red Mart, they're shot on. They seem to outnumber the number of uh, non-antibacterial compounds. But I think the issue is that the effectiveness of these compounds, especially in the home setting, they're not backed up by science. Uh, they don't really prevent illness better than just ordinary soap and water, for instance. And the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, in fact, banned the use of these compounds because they're not effective and their long-term health effects are unknown. So I think any claims that they are better at preventing uh, bacterial infections or even COVID-19 is false because COVID-19 is, uh, is a virus, right? And <laughs> ordinary soap and water will do the job just as well. And alcohol hand rubs are more effective at uh, preventing the transmission of uh, bacteria or viruses. But if, if we use all this, I think a lot of people use them, Will it affect this AMR? That's a very good question. And I think for the most part, it will not um, because these compounds, as I mentioned, are not the ones that we inject into ourselves or take as pills. But rarely for some bacteria, the resistance genes for antibiotics are found on the same genetic parts of the bacteria as the resistance genes for these compounds so they can get transmitted as a whole to subsequent generations of different types of bacteria. And that's, I guess, the, the real concern about the use of these anti antibacterial compounds. I see. Interesting. Even though, I mean, we usually wash it off. It's quite quick. Okay. But there's no reason to actually get them, like you said, right? Because ordinary soap works just as well. That's right. Yes. Right. So if you like what you're hearing so far, please subscribe to the Health Chat Podcast for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. Now back to my conversation with Associate Professor Suli Young, the Vice Dean of Global Health at the NUS Hawk School of Public Health. So are there lessons from the pandemic that can be applied to the control of AMR? That's a very good question. I think there are many lessons. I'm just not sure how they can be applied um, directly. The pandemic has shown us that if we can get the attention, creativity and resources of people focused on one issue, we can generate a lot more solutions and understanding very quickly. Many people, and it's not just healthcare or public health professionals, uh, became experts on COVID-19. And I don't mean that in a bad armchair sort of way. I think before the pandemic, I wouldn't think any of our ministers, for instance, could know very much about immunology, viruses, or outbreak containment strategies. But now they know enough to have really deep discussions with the so-called traditional experts. And I think if we can raise the same level of awareness and concern about uh, antimicrobial resistance, even if it's just a fraction of the kind of focus that we have had on uh, the SARS coronavirus too, 
then we, we should certainly have more breakthroughs for the control of antimicrobial resistance. Right. Um, actually, can you give us some examples? So, you know, when we talk about AMR, right, antimicrobial resistance, the worry is that, um, you know, to many people, it's sometime in the future, right, that, you know, medicines may become ineffective and then there'll be more infections. So, I mean, right now, like, what do you see um, that has happened because of this? Like uh, climate change, it's been quite insidious and the effects of antimicrobial resistance has been more evident to doctors in hospitals than to everybody else, for instance. Uh, but we have certainly seen over the past 10 years um, common infections like urinary tract infections that many women get become much harder to treat because the bacteria has become resistant to most of the oral antibiotics that we use to give for uh, urinary tract infections. Um, we have seen those in ICUs, uh, such as those who have suffered from um, COVID-19, for instance. Sometimes they get uh, superimposed bacterial infection. And in this setting, the bacteria tend to be resistant to all the common antibiotics. And we have to rely on more expensive, less effective uh, antibiotics that have probably more side effects than the common antibiotics just to treat these patients and make sure they survive from their um, intensive care unit experience. So all this has been going on um, while we have been focused on other things, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure if I got you there. So you mean when they are sick? So you mean when they have multiple infections? I use um, COVID as an example, but uh, sometimes people have emergency operations, right? big operations, mm -hmm. when they have a stomach ulcer that has perforated um, or they have got uh, cancer or something serious that needs a big operation. And they need to be monitored in the intensive care unit and on uncommonly they can get a bacterial infection on top of what they are already suffering from because their immune systems have been breached. They have been operated on, they've got lines put in them and so on and so forth. So such patients are more vulnerable to infections. There are also cancer patients who have been given uh, systemic chemotherapy that affects their immune system and makes them more vulnerable to bacterial infections as well. And so in these patients, we sometimes get more commonly over the past decade infections caused by bacteria that are resistant to more and more antibiotics. I see. So it make, makes it worse. But in, so if that's the case, why is it so difficult to, you know, just develop something else, like new antibiotics for this kind of infections? That's actually a very good question. And I think there are several reasons for this. Um, I think like unlike COVID-19, antimicrobial resistance is not just one bacteria or microbe, but it occurs in a wide range of different microbes and bacteria. And we just haven't found a way to create like a super vaccine or super antibiotic against all possible drug-resistant microbes. It also means that our attention on antimicrobial resistance, even before the pandemic, has been more diffuse. Um, I think the other factor is that when antibiotics are developed, they also don't generate a high profit for the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, 
the subsidiary industry has turned away from developing antibiotics for the past decades because they are just uh, so unprofitable a business for them to go into. And recently, two of the small companies that develop new antibiotics have gone bankrupt, right? So this area is very challenging for the developments of new treatments uh, until, I guess, we get a major crisis that uh, forces everyone's attention back on it again, at which time it may be too late. Like COVID. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> so back to COVID, right? I mean, now um, there is this Omicron. Everybody is talking about it. So how worried are we that, you know, it will break through the protection from vaccines against severe disease, right? Which is like the key thing, actually. I think the, the first thing is to take a step back and realize that we don't have a lot of information about the Omicron variants yet. Um, the World Health Organization has labeled it a variant of concern because it seems to be spreading very rapidly in South Africa, uh, even against the backdrop of the Delta variant. Right, So there's some physical evidence that it is more efficient at transmitting. Um, it also has on its genome multiple mutations um, that have been reported in previous COVID-19 variants, which enable these variants to spread more effectively or to evade the immune system uh, in terms of past infections or from vaccinations. So I think there is justifiably a lot of concern about it. Um, but at the same time, we need to wait for the laboratory studies and uh, epidemiological studies that's happening right now to tell us how much of a real concern it is going to be. Uh, I'm sure that it will spread very easily, perhaps more easily than the Delta variants, if we go by what's happening in South Africa. Um, but I don't know yet whether the vaccines, for instance, will still protect against severe disease and death. In fact, I'm pretty sure it will. It's just uh, to what extent. Um, mm -hmm. And we also don't know how deadly it is because so far the cases have mostly been in fairly young, healthy individuals, all of whom have been relatively well or just mildly ill. And most of the travelers detected with this variant have been asymptomatic so far. I see. Okay, but with countries closing off their borders, it might take a while for us to see the effect then. Yeah, I wouldn't talk very much about closing borders because it's a strategy that doesn't work very well. Um, I think it helps in a sense that it buys a country some time to make plans for this new variant, but ultimately it will come in right? and the strategy cannot be kept forever. But there are lots of laboratory studies going on, including in Singapore, um, just to see how this variant is going to perform against uh, neutralizing antibodies raised by past infection or by the vaccines. I think that's the critical piece that we are short of now. And of course, after a week or two, we will be able to see its impact on the ground in South Africa in terms of uh, hospitalizations and, and deaths. That's, I guess, a very um, bad way of looking at things, but that's where the, the data will be coming from for the next uh, week or so. Um, I think actually it's to the credit of the South African scientists that they have discovered this variant so far, so fast, right? In mm -hmm. other countries without the same kind of uh, genetic or genomic sequencing setup, um, it would have been a much bigger outbreak uh, before people knew that there was this variant spreading around. Right. 
But now they're saying, you know, because of their news, people are closing off their borders yeah, to so South Africa. A bit of an unfair punishment for having alerted the global community. Yes, that's true. Right. Okay. So the virus, that's separate from what governments are doing. But like you said, they're buying time. So we will know. But um, what you mentioned was quite interesting. So Singapore is actually studying it. But nowadays, you can kind of build uh, the spike protein or rebuild the spike protein of the coronavirus alone, just with all the mutations built in, um, and just see how the antibodies bind to it. So you're not testing a real-life virus. We don't, as far as I know, have the Omicron virus in our laboratories in Singapore. Great. Thanks for your time today, Liang. Great. Thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. Don't forget to subscribe to us for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Search for Straits Times Health Check, like us and give us a rating. Thank you for listening. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.